A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. face it, the biblical teaching can be difficult for human beings to understand, let alone accept. In St. Paul's teaching on the law and grace in Romans, we are presented with two things that are related but not equal. The outcome, which Paul calls the free gift, grace, is our status of being at peace with God, a state of legal justification or being declared righteous. On the other side of that is the offense, which is sin, disobedience, and which is made known to us by the law itself. In Paul's argument, both sides of the equation have God as their source. To clarify, it is not God who wills the offense, but it is he who gives us the instruction, which, when it is not obeyed, makes that offense known to us. As hard as it is for us to accept, Scripture teaches that God gives us the law to show us that we cannot keep it, to expose our inability to achieve righteousness on our own. In modern parlance, we would say that God is setting us up to fail, which, of course, we find totally unacceptable. It is also God, and only He, who bestows the free gift, which is grace, So in this equation, although it is God who sets up and dispenses both sides, on the one giving the law and on the other bestowing grace, we are only able to contribute to the first part. In a nutshell, I am responsible for my offense and the condemnation that results, but the free gift of reconciliation, which leads to justification and being declared righteous, is solely under the aegis of God." From the perspective of the human, having no say in determining the outcome is also something we have a hard time accepting. As much as we want to, we can never master the biblical teaching. We can only hear it and submit. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Joining me again today on the podcast is Noel Neff, the Sunday School Superintendent at St. George Orthodox Church in Cedar Rapids, where I am the pastor. As we work our way through the lectionary, Noel and I are discussing Romans chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 6, verse 2. Welcome, Noel. Thank you, Father. So I have to confess, when I read the lectionary for this week, I was disappointed in what it was. I really wanted to ask you if we could leave the lectionary behind and pick something more interesting. We are in Romans, and all week long, Paul is talking about the law and grace, which we covered in a recent podcast. I was cringing inside thinking, do our listeners really want to hear about the law and grace again, and so soon? But I had to force my unwise human ears to submit to scripture and not the other way around. And you and I are submitting to the lectionary of the church as our starting point. So let's hear what scripture has to say again about the law and grace. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 5, verse 17 
through chapter 6, verse 2. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How should we who died to sin live any longer in it? This is the end of our scripture passage that we're starting with. You know, the first thing that stood out to me in this passage is that it contains the whole scriptural story in seven verses. We have the beginning and the end. It begins with Adam, the first offender, through which death reigned. Because of Adam, all men are condemned, but through one man's righteousness, we receive the justification of life. I hope this isn't an oversimplification, but it sure seems like human beings are being sandwiched between two things we can't control condemnation, and righteousness. Scripture is forcing us to claim the legacy of sin coming from Adam, whom God created in the beginning. But we also can't claim righteousness for ourselves, but only through Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of the whole story, the end. Scripture is forcing us into a tight spot, one we can't wiggle out of on our own. We are being slammed between Scripture and a rock if we are hearing it honestly. Scripture strips even more power from us in verse 20 when it continues, saying that the law entered that offense might abound. It sure sounds like the scriptural God is making it known that he is the only one with any power in this story. So what are we to do with this, Father? Do we just accept our stuck state and stay there? Noel, you really hit it on the head when you said that scripture puts us in a position we can't get out of. When we submit to really hearing this teaching, at some point, we are going to find ourselves stuck. The entire story, as you said, is really summed up in these seven verses from Romans. The fact that we might prefer to be talking about something more exciting, yet the lectionary again forces this teaching on us, the law and grace, means if we are serious, then we have to once again deal with it. Just recognizing that predicament that as hearers of scripture, we are pinned down and can't wriggle away is an indication that we are starting to hear and maybe understand the teaching, that we are indeed stuck. But what then? What do we do now? Once we get over the shock of hearing that God would give us a law to expose our sin, we might be tempted to conclude, well then, why do anything at all? Why not just accept being stuck and stay there? Paul anticipates the logical conclusion to such an argument. You know, why not just continue in the offense? And he dismisses it out of hand. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In the passages leading up to this part of Romans 5, 
Paul presents Abraham as the example of one who is justified by faith. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That's Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. So if righteousness was something Abraham received because of some work he did, he would only be earning his wage. But in the biblical story, he was the recipient of a gift. Abraham trusted in God, who spoke to him a promise, one that, to boot, seems impossible from a human perspective. That at nearly 100 years old and having a barren wife, he would become the father of a multitude of nations and have progeny as numerous as the stars of heaven. I think the contrast between this idea of wage and grace is making sense to me for the first time. I'm hearing that if we only had the law, we would have to work for our salvation or earn a wage. But since we aren't capable of living up to the law, we wouldn't actually be making a wage. In the world of monetary compensation, you get paid for your abilities and accomplishments. We have neither when it comes to the law. We would be in debt, and that debt would keep growing and growing. How abysmal and hopeless would that be? But God in his goodness has offered us the gift of grace. By accepting this grace, we are accepting a gift instead of a wage, one we aren't actually capable of earning. Exactly. And the Abraham example is critical to the biblical understanding of grace. It's God intervening and doing something decisive at a point when human beings have no way of getting out from under the predicament otherwise. In a sense, Abraham doesn't do anything except put his trust in the word of God. And that's accounted to him as righteousness in chapter 15 of Genesis And then a little bit later, when he's tested in chapter 22, the blessing is repeated and affirmed because Abraham obeyed the voice of the Lord. It's nothing but trust and obedience on the part of Abraham. And we're going to find out from St. Paul that that's basically everything. In verses 15 and 16 of Romans 5, immediately before the passage we heard today, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Paul goes on to say that the sin of one results in condemnation, while the free gift, which comes from many sins, results in justification. We can see there, there's an imbalance Paul puts the situation in succinct terms when he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, which becomes the turning point of the whole argument. In other words, God is not relying on us to get out of the predicament this teaching puts us in. Human offense, sin, disobedience, leads to condemnation, but the free gift, the grace, the only thing that can redeem comes from God. And that's precisely how the gift is not like the condemnation. The former comes solely from God, while the latter is the result of human disobedience, opposition to the will of God. In this scenario, human beings have no hope of getting out of their predicament, so God intervenes with his grace, and it's the only way we can be saved from condemnation and death. 
This intervention by God is spoken of in the prophetic books of Scripture. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord." For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The law alone doesn't make anything better, but only leads to death. In Jeremiah, the Lord references that first covenant, the law given to the children of Israel through Moses after being delivered from bondage under Pharaoh, and he emphasizes that they didn't keep it. The new covenant he will make after those days is not according to the first covenant in that the outcome isn't a result of human effort. It's not a wage paid for work done. In the verses from Romans, Paul repeatedly refers to the free gift, the grace. Moreover, he tells us four times over five verses that the free gift comes through and by Jesus Christ. In verse 17, we hear, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And in verses 18 and 19, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And in verse 21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul really hammers it in here that not only is the free gift of God, but that it happens by and through Jesus. Here, grace and Jesus are functionally equivalent. And just as disobedience was the cause of many being made sinners, Many are made righteous specifically by his, that is Jesus's, obedience. So, God not only intervenes to save us from our disobedience, but he gives us more than a cancellation of those sins. It's not wage for work. It's not an equal dispensation of grace for sins. It's so much more than we could ever comprehend to ask for. We are given Jesus, and through his example of obedience, we are given life instead of condemnation and death. We can look at it this way. In the biblical story, nothing changes. Since Adam, it's a repetitive story of stubbornness and disobedience on the part of human beings. There's simply no way out. Even the law which the Lord gives to the sons of Israel only amplifies their predicament. By their inability to be faithful to the law, it becomes apparent that apart from an intervention by God, they will remain stuck, condemned and sentenced to death. And while nothing changes in Scripture, 
Only the free gift of God by and through Jesus offers a way out. In the story, Jesus is the game changer. He changes the game because now the Lord intervenes decisively in the story. This comes out in the two genealogies in the New Testament, one in Matthew and one in Luke. In both, a long series of human begetting fails to achieve anything other than another generation stuck in the same predicament as all of us, bound by sin and death. In both, the birth of Jesus is presented as coming directly from God. Significantly, the name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which literally means the Lord saves. And that's really the whole point of the story. It's definitely worth noting that in the biblical canon, Joshua is the first book of the so-called former prophets. Isaiah is the first book of the latter prophets. And Hosea is the first book of the scroll of the Twelve. All three of these names mean the same thing. The Lord saves. So we can say that scripture really is proclaiming the saving act of the Lord the whole time in the very names of the lead prophetic books, all the way up to its final proclamation in the gospel. In the New Testament, it is the same hope that it is the Lord alone who will get us out of the endless cycle of sin and death. Now broadened with more far-reaching effect, since the gospel is presented not only to the sons of Israel, but to all the nations. In Romans, Paul says that the righteousness of many comes by one man's obedience, and that one man is Jesus. This is in contradistinction to the disobedience of Adam, his failure to abide by the commandment given by the Lord God in the second chapter of Genesis, by which offense many were judged and condemned to death. In Philippians chapter 2, the obedience of Jesus is presented as the example to follow. When we ask that question, what should we do about our predicament, particularly knowing that we have been given the grace by and through Jesus, we might begin by hearing this scripture and learning from it. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself." Let each of you look out not for only his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. And a few verses later, Paul tells us what we should do. He exhorts his hearers to obedience while reminding them that there is one whose will matters and to which all should submit. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I think we can conclude by returning to the imagery of being slammed between scripture and a rock and elaborate in light of our discussion. Let's imagine that rock is in front of us and represents knowledge of our sin and disobedience. No matter how hard we work, we can't move that rock. It's blocking our path forward toward any progress we can claim on our own accord. Behind us, scripture is smashing up against us. We can't budge scripture either because it is prepared for our every move and anticipates our complete and utter failure to co-opt it for our own purposes. Knowing everything from scripture to our knowledge of the rock is willed by God. Maybe our only real chance at moving in this stuck state is to try to wiggle into a position where we can turn around. At least then, while we are stuck in place, we will be facing the scriptural God. We could take a deep breath and be at peace with the acceptance that this is the only intervention we will ever truly be able to count on. After all, in Christ's absence, this is the only thing we are left with. Scripture is the only thing we can say for certain is of likeness with Christ in this world. If we are to imitate Christ, we ought to understand that which he imitates. So I guess while we are stuck in the state waiting for God to will and do his good pleasure with us, we might as well open up scripture and hear what it has to say. And that teaching of scripture is exactly what we are left with. It's what Jesus gave to his disciples before he parted from them at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. Thank you, Noel, for joining me today, and thank all of you for listening. This concludes episode 17 of A Light to the Nations. I look forward to meeting again with you soon.